0: Good morning. It's a blessing to uh, be back. Um, we got to go on a uh, trip to Tennessee, and uh, Chris Cashin filled in last uh, Sunday and talked about the Believer's Battle, uh, having to come up with a title. It, it was good. We got the uh, Believer's Battle, two B's there. It uh, kind of... Uh, and uh, it's a struggle that uh, believers go through. I'm so thankful for Chris filling in in that way and Phil filling in on Wednesday. Uh, we, uh, we've had some things that we've been doing. Uh, I think I saw in the bulletin about the baby bottle announcement. We, we raised $1,480.51. Praise the Lord for that. Um, all those little coins added up, and uh, those funds will be used for uh, mothers and young children. And then uh, during VBS, uh, we, recole- uh, we collected up uh, school supplies and gave those school supplies to True Light Baptist Church, and Pastor Kim Williams wrote and um, thanked us so much for the uh, blessings, uh, that this will be a blessing to many families, and it will open opportunities to share the good news of the gospel. Uh, they uh, deeply appreciate the kindness and generosity. Uh, so that's a huge praise. And then um, it, then we, we've we sent uh, 31 individuals all the way to Tennessee. So it's kind of like we seem like we've been a little bit busy with, with the giving and, and so forth. Uh, but uh, I pray that we'll continue to not, not let off, but continue to Think about opportunities to serve, serve around here, and to um, uh, to serve in other places. Praise the Lord. We had, uh, I think what I counted up was nine decisions uh, for salvation over in uh, Mountain City. There was five that I was able to talk with and confirm and, and uh, just make sure that they understood the gospel. It, it was really neat because um, uh, it was mostly the people that, that came from our church that was sharing the gospel, and uh, I, as I talked to the kids, I, I kind of tried to trick them a little bit, you know. Uh, you know, how good do you have to be to be saved? And, and, and they would look at me like, what? And No, you can't be good enough. You, you know, I said, you're not really a sinner, right? And, no, I am a sinner. You know, they, I mean, they would just know the questions. I couldn't even trick them. So they, they had a, a firm faith in Jesus Christ, which was really good. And it's a huge testimony uh, to our people. Had they uh, answered questions incorrectly, I would have to wonder about us if we are really explaining the gospel correctly, right? Uh, so praise the Lord that uh, the kids had a clear understanding. There was one little girl. Uh, she, she hadn't made a profession of faith. She, she, was, she had questions. She wanted to know uh, more about salvation and so forth. And so uh, I was chatting with her. And she was an excellent reader. I mean, she's a lot better than I am at reading. And um, she was, uh, I, I, I started going through the gospel presentation and kind of showing that we're all sinners. And so I went to Romans three twenty three and and she just read it all off. And I and asked her a couple of questions from the text, and she read it, and she answered the questions. And she understood we're all sinners. And, and I, I even asked her if she understood that she was a sinner. And she said, yeah, she uh, confessed rather quickly that she had been disobedient to her mom, et cetera. Et cetera. Uh, so, we went to the consequence of sin, right? Uh, Romans 6, 23. And uh, she read it. I mean, she just read it off. And I said, do you know what the word wages mean? And um, she said, no. And so, I explained, you know, what wages, it's, it's what you deserve. And so, I said, according to this verse, what is it that you deserve? And so she read, and I could I could see her glancing over the words, and she gets to the point where it says, the wages of sin is death. And all of a sudden, this little girl, her her hands go up to her eyes, and she just starts crying. And she says, I want my daddy! And she takes off, and her, her dad was right there. I'm like, oh my goodness, had she waited just two minutes, I would have given her hope. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, now, I had been talking with her parents, and uh, I knew they were both believers, and and uh, I knew that they would continue sharing the gospel with her, uh, so I, I, I kind of backed off. But I, I realized then that if we do another missions trip, um, I probably won't get invited. Um, they'll say, no, you just stay here. Don't talk to the children, please. Uh, um, but uh, praise the Lord uh, for this church sending and for those willing to go. Uh from what I understand, we have an invitation to come back next year. I, that, that's, that says something. You, usually people say thank you, and then they don't invite you back. You, and so you understand what that means, you know. It's like thanks, but no thanks. But they invited us back. And then uh, a friend of mine saw uh, pictures that we did this missions trip, and he, he ministers in Honduras. And he said, hey, can you guys come here? Uh, so let's be praying that God will give us wisdom as to where we can minister and where we um what we should be doing. We're in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 and we'll be reading verses 20 and 21. If you would please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Ephesians chapter 1 uh, and verses 20 and 21 it says, Which he uh, brought about in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. Let's pray. Father, I pray now as we look at this text that um, your spirit would convict us. Father, that we would see those areas of our life that we need to change. And and I pray that we will uh, be obedient, and that will change them for your honor and your glory. Father, there might be someone here that is not saved, and I pray that the Holy Spirit would convict this person's heart and that they would see their need for a Savior, that they would understand that their sin separates them from you. But, but Father, that there's there's hope in Jesus Christ. Father, for other of us here, we uh, we might be having a hope in something else other than Christ. We're saved, but our eyes have been taken off of you, and and put on earthly things. And I pray, Father, that you would change that, that we would repent of that, and and that we would focus on you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Would you be willing to risk more or less if you knew that the risk was a non-risk? Would you be willing to risk more or less if you knew that the risk was really a non-risk? Like like if you understood that um, what others thought was a huge risk really wasn't a risk, and would you be willing to risk for something that you understood, you understood from your perspective, was really a non-risk? An article written by Frank McAndrew entitled, What Makes People Willing to Risk Their Lives to Save Others, he wrote it in the magazine, The Conversation, He talked about uh, 15 out of uh, 16 winners of the Carnegie Medal were men. And uh, he he talked about that uh, men are are more willing to run into danger than women. And he used the example of the train that went from Paris to Amsterdam in 2015, where there was the three American soldiers on it, and there was a guy, he was about to do an act of terrorism, and they they stopped him. They stopped him from, from doing that. And in the article, he he kind of went into this whole thing of this evolutionary process of of men and how they have developed evolutionary over the the years and centuries and blah, 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 and went on and on and on. And his conclusion was uh, that um, men, men are more afraid of being considered a coward, and so because they're afraid of being considered a coward, they're willing to risk their lives. Now, uh, by implication, and I don't know that he meant to imply this, but by implication from the article was that women don't care to be, if they're considered cowards or not. They, they don't really care about that. And I think had he just pulled back a little bit from all his whole evolutionary process, he might have seen what he was articulating, what he was arguing for, that uh, men are this way because they don't want to be considered cowards. but women really don't care if you consider them a coward or not, and so they don't save lives. Now he didn't say that, but that was implied in his, in his article. It's a tricky place that he cornered himself because he said, well, what motivates certain people is not wanting to be considered something. Now, if you think about this, you think about risk in your life, what if you had a certain perspective to realize that something wasn't a risk? Like, like, you could see the safety net that nobody else could see. You, you could see it. Or, or maybe you saw that the gains outweighed the volatility of the investment, and, and so it, it was just going to be all gains. I mean, 300%. Nobody else saw it, but you saw it. Or, or you saw the potential in something. Nobody else saw the potential. Everybody else thought it was, the, walk away from this. But you saw something in it and you realize that it wasn't a risk at all, that you would just put your money into this and it would just produce. Well, experts would think that you're crazy for risking, you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that it was really a non-risk. But wouldn't you you risk for something that you realized was a non-risk? I mean, wouldn't you put all your time and energy and effort would you not dedicate yourself totally if you realized you weren't going to lose a thing in this, but there was only going to be gains? Well, most of us would. But we've been looking in this context, as Paul has wrote to this church in Ephesus. He has this uh, focused theme on unity and love. Now, the unity is not a superficial unity where we just get along by not sharing our opinions or sharing our thoughts, but rather it's a unity based on on doctrine, based on the Trinity, based on the fact that God has sovereignly worked and chosen, Christ has redeemed and purchased, the Holy Spirit has sealed. There is a doctrinal unity that brings the church together. And this doctrinal unity expresses itself in love, love towards one another, love towards God, in serving God and love towards one another and reaching out. This love gets shown. He he develops the doctrinal part in the first three chapters that shows a unity towards doctrine and a love towards God. And then it shows a unity in the church and a love for one another in the last three chapters. What we're going to be looking at today in these two verses is that we're supposed to risk it all for God because you are in Christ. We are supposed to risk it all uh, for God because you are in Christ. We see that uh, the first thing is that God's incredible power worked in Christ. God's incredible power worked in Christ. He says, uh, which he uh, brought. Now, the which goes back to its antecedent, which is uh, verse 19. And that is the surpassing greatness of his power, So Paul is readdressing the surpassing greatness of his power, and he's saying that this surpassing greatness of his power is uh, he brought about in Christ. That word brought has this idea of um, to to work, to put into operation, to make active. But it's not just to make active, but to make active in in the sense of being effective. In other words, that it fulfills its purpose. You can have... um, You can have some people working, and uh, you tell them, uh, can you dig a straight trench here, and it looks more like an S. They they have worked, but they haven't been effective. Whereas you could have an engineer who designs a bridge, and and it works. People can drive on it. It's effective. It, It has worked according to its capabilities so that it functions how it should. That's that word, and it says that he, God, has worked. He has operated, he has used his surpassing greatness of his power for this purpose. What? What has he worked out? He's worked it out in Christ. He's worked it out in Christ. God has used his capabilities, and he's used his capabilities all the time in his providence, how God works sovereignly to fulfill his plan for his glory. But in this case, Paul is addressing something specific that the surpassing greatness of His power is being worked out in Christ. In Christ. Now, that short little prepositional phrase is really reiterated a lot of times in this letter, more times than any other letter and that Paul talks about being in Christ. And then there's the variance. For example, in verse 3 we see this aspect of being in Christ. Uh, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. How have we been blessed? We've been blessed in Christ. But then we can also see the variant of that, which would be verse 6, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. So, it doesn't say in Christ, but the Beloved is Christ. And so, therefore, it's a variant of this being in Christ. Now, God the Father worked in the Beloved. God put His capabilities, as it says, the surpassing greatness of His power, He put that in His beloved Son. Humanly speaking, we can kind of identify with that, using our ingenuity, our strength, and everything for our our kids. Uh, Jesus makes mention of this in uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 9 and 11. You remember He's talking to the disciples, and He's giving the Beatitudes, and He says, uh, verse 9, Or what man is there among you? You who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give uh, what is good to those who ask him? He's teaching them about praying and asking of the Lord, and he says, Look, you humanly fathers know how to give things. I mean, it, it would be absurd that. A kid comes to you and says, hey, uh, I'm hungry. Can I have some bread? And you say, well, one second. You go out and you get some of this rock out here and you go, here you go. Enjoy. Uh, no, no one would do that. That would just be very mean. Or they say, hey, I, I'd, I'd love to have some fish. And like, give me one second. I'll get you the fish. And they come back with a snake. No, no father would do that. And he says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts, how much more your Father? So here, God the Father is working His surpassing greatness of His power in Christ, who is His beloved Son. He's working this out. Now, um, you might say, well, I don't know if I can really trust God. I mean, I know that He is working the surpassing greatness of His power in Christ, but, I mean, let's just look at the facts here. Christ came to this earth, lived among the people, suffered, and then he, he died. I mean, and it wasn't like one of those cute little deaths. It, it was a gruesome death. Yeah, Why would I trust this God who is working the surpassing greatness of his power in Christ? I mean, this just seems quite evil. God sent his son to die on a cross to suffer and be humiliated. Well, it was true that it's God's plan. Jesus chose to obey the Father, and he understood that the momentary suffering would forever accomplish God's glorious plan to bring those who were dead, separated from their their God because of their sin, close to God. And so therefore, he obeyed the Father. This wasn't like some type of child abuse. It was the son working out the Father's plan to bring those of us who are far away close to have a relationship. He, he's working this out in love, as it said before. Now, we see that Christ, uh, God the Father worked in the Beloved. The believer is in Christ. And we, we already saw verses 3 and verse 6. Uh, chapter 2, verse 5 and 7, if you just look over there at the other page, uh, it he says, Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The believer is in Christ. Uh, If you look at verse 22 uh, 22 and and 23 of chapter 1, it it talks about how we are in Christ. We are His body. He is the head. We're not going to look at those verses uh, right now and, and develop them, but we are His, those who are believed, are His body. We are in Christ. Now, so if God is working in His beloved, and we are in Christ... Logically, then, it means that God works in the believer. God is working in the believer. And this is a point that is really developed in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 of how our faith is tied to God's working in Christ. Our faith is dependent upon Christ and how God has worked in Christ. We have hope, our faith is not vain because of how God has worked in, in Christ. Now you, you think about that, and you think about the aspect of, of risk. If your life is for Christ, if your hope is in Christ, if your desire is Christ, what can you what type of risk is involved here? Well, there is no risk because God's surpassing greatness of his power has worked in Christ. And you are in Christ, therefore it doesn't matter what happens. You have hope, you have assurance, you're set. The thing though is what if your hope is not Christ? I mean, what if, what if it what if your hope is really this this promotion? I mean, you're really hoping for this promotion. Or you're really hoping for these grades because you want to get into this certain college and you really, you really want to get in there. I mean, that's your hope. I mean, if I, if I get into this college, I'll be set. Oh, then it could be risky business. It could be very risky because God will destroy everything that gets in the way of him because he won't share his glory with anything else, anybody else. But if your hope is in Christ, you, there is no risk. There's absolutely no risk because God has worked the surpassing greatness of his power in Christ, and you are in Christ. You're sad. Now, what did he work? What did God work? God worked to, write, to raise Christ. It said uh, verse 20, verse 20 of chapter 1. Uh, when he raised him from the dead. It, it's a participle uh, raising him from the dead. Yeah, you could translate it. Raising him up. Now, of course, the word can have just a usual meaning of uh, of waking somebody. They're asleep and you, you wake them up. But here, contextually, as it talks about the redemption and, and the fact that Christ has, has died to bring salvation, here the idea is, uh, of course, how it says from the dead, it's not just waking him up, but there's giving this life. Now, Part of preaching is anticipating questions. And and I can tell that you're already having two questions, and we might as well address them, because (laughs) if I keep on going, you'll be asking these questions the whole time, and you won't pay attention to anything else I say. So let's go ahead and and look at the two questions, and then uh, we, we can move on with the rest of the verse. The first question you're asking, how is it that God the Son died? How is that possible? I mean, you're reading this, and yeah, you see he raised him from the dead. But there's the question. I know you were all thinking that. How is it that Christ, God the Son, died? And then the second question you are having, I know you're having it, is uh, Jesus said, uh, no one takes my life. I lay down my life, and I take it back up. But here it's saying that God raised him from the dead. It seems to be inconsistent. Did God raise him? Did Christ raise himself, or did God raise him? God the Father. And I know you're asking those questions, so we need to go ahead and answer those questions before we move forward, so that we don't get just stuck here. Now, how is it that God the Son died? Well, the body of Christ was put to death. He took on flesh, and that was dead. Now, um, the death here specifically is this issue of... Of separation and as God put his wrath all the sins of the world on Christ there was a separation when Adam and Eve sinned the day that they ate the fruit they would surely die they were separated from God their sin separated there wasn't a single thing in the world that they could have done to get a step closer to God their sin separated totally in the separation here Jesus is separated from the Father. Now, how is it? How is it possible that the Father and the Son be separate? There's only one God. There's three persons. One God. How is the Son separate from the Father? Well, I'll be honest here. I have no idea. Uh, you have people who develop large theological books, and the more you start talking about this, the more you jump into heresy and unorthodoxy, because you have to then stipulate things, and as you stipulate, you start going away and, and, and start messing up other doctrines. So, it happened. How did it happen? Uh, we'd have to ask God exactly how this happens. But there was a separation from the Father and the Son as he bore the wrath of God. Now, this, this the other thing that happened is that he says he raised them up. Now, how did he raise him up? John 10, 18 is where Jesus says, Look, I lay down my life and I take it back up. But here it's saying that the Father raised him up. How are we to understand this? The way of understanding this is that Jesus uh, raised himself from the dead. The Father has approved his sacrifice. You you can see this in Acts chapter 2, verse 22 uh, to 36. In those verses, if you want to go over there, Acts chapter 2, uh, Peter is preaching, he starts in verse 14, and, he, and he's going through and, and, and developing the sermon. In verse 22, he starts talking specifically about Christ, and in verse 24 it says, "...but God raised him up again." "...putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power." So, there you have both aspects, that Christ could not be held by death, and that God the Father raised him. He, he develops this by using Old Testament text, and he keeps on going. And then in verse 36 it says, "...therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucify." This raising up was an approval of on God's part of the sacrifice of the Son. So, now that we got those two questions answered, we can keep on looking at our text here. God raised him. He approved of his sacrifice. It it was finished. It's done. All his wrath was put on Christ. Now, as we see this, it says, uh, He raised him from the dead. Uh, As you look at that, our faith is tied to the fact that God raised him from the dead. Our, our, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 12 through 19. Our hope would be in vain if this didn't happen. We would, we would not have any hope at all. We, we would be wasting our time being here this Sunday morning. We could be at home watching cartoons. If Christ has not raised from the dead, there's no point in being here. There, there's none at all. But the fact that God's surpassing greatness of his power worked in Christ to raise him from the dead, we have hope. Now that hope allows us to risk in, in ways that other people who have who do not have Christ cannot risk. Like you can risk to be a bondservant, as Paul was. You can risk by forgiving those who have sinned against you. You can risk by dropping your pride and stop demanding control over every situation in your life because your life is safe in Christ. If if you understand this, you have hope, and you can live totally different. Now, but if your hope is not in Christ, you're not going to be willing to serve because that will take time away from serving yourself. You're not going to be able to forgive, because if you forgive, <laughs> if you forgive, they might do it again. <laughs> they will do it again. You know they will. You know they're going to do it again. So you can't. You got to hold that little bit of bitterness and, and remind them that they've done wrong. It really helps to remind them. They really appreciate it when you tell them over and over again, you failed. It, if your hope is not in Christ, you're going to have to try to control your world. You're going to have to try to manipulate. You're going to have to try to plan things to the nth degree because there's always contingencies. I mean, you have to address that anxiety of not having control, and so you'll have to control and control and control. But if your hope is in Christ... He's in control. God's in control. Who has worked his surpassing greatness of his power in Christ. One who has faith in God, who worked in Christ, a believer, there's hope there. It's not a risk. You're not losing anything because you're secure in Christ. Now, not only did he work, God worked to raise, but also to seek Christ. That, That word, Uh, Seating is also a participle, and it has um, not only the idea of just sitting down, but authorizing, putting, uh, installing, or appointing. And and specifically, he's, um, as it says, seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. That word heavenly places is used also in um, verse 3, and it gives this place where God resides and from which blessings come from. They come from where God is. And Christ now is in the heavenly places. But not just the heavenly places because there's others that enter the heavenly places. We know from Job that Satan would go in to the presence of the Lord and accuse. Uh, We also know that believers are in the presence of the Lord. He's not just in the presence of the Lord. Where is he? He's at the right hand, at the right side. He's there at the right side, at his right hand. It's a place of sovereignty, of prestige, of, of honor. It, it echoes to Psalm chapter t- uh, 110 and verse 1 where he says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. It, it's, Paul is referencing this. As, this is what he has done. He's seated. He has that place of authority in the heavenly places. Now, uh, just to clarify a little bit more, in case we're not understanding, he goes into verse 21. In verse 21, he says, far above. um, It intensifies the preposition, even further above. uh, Further above all rule and authority and power and dominion. That word dominion has the idea of lordship. He's above all lords. This is where he's been placed, far above. There's no one that comes close. Now, there is some debate as to is this talking about earthly people or is this talking about spiritual realm? And um, it could very easily, since it says it's qualified by all be all, he's over all, spiritual and physical. God has placed him here at his right hand, far above. And in every name that is named. Not only in this age, but in also in the one to come. Now, when we get into this fact of this age, it, uh, it presents a little bit of a problem. What in the world is this age? What are we talking about when we talk about this age? Uh, and, and there's several different ways that we can understand this. The first is, uh, the Bible seems to present three, three ages, or, or three tenses. Uh, a past tense, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, he, Paul writes that those things that happened in the past are for us to study and to know. Not to live back there, but to know what, what happened. Uh, there's the present tense, which is where God reveals his will. And in every time period, there's always a present tense where God has revealed his will and he has an expectation of what he wants people to do. And then there's the future. And the future, as it says here in what will come, uh, it's anticipating the future rule of God. Well, you find hope in suffering in the future. You, you find what you need to change because the future is coming and, and you don't want to live how you're living. You want to uh, change for God's glory. So it, it could be that. It could be that this present age is, as some would consider it, the time of the Gentiles. Luke chapter 21, verse 24. Uh, this idea gets developed really in the book of Daniel. As you see, the different kingdoms, the different statues, the different beasts that appear uh, indicates the different kingdoms of the earth until Christ's kingdom comes and is, is established. Some look at this present age as the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. If you remember when Jesus is talking about the Lord's Supper, he says this is the blood of the new covenant. So maybe this present age that we're living in is the new covenant. There, there's, there's problems with that. Um, and then others will take that the present age is this current dispensation of the church. Contextually, verses 22 and 23 talk about that uh, he's put everything uh, subject under his feet and gave him as head over all the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills it all in all. Contextually, I think this present age is talking about this church age that we're in. But, and then he says, but as it says in, in verse 21, but also in the one to come. Now, the one to come, what is that one? Usually people identify this one as the messianic kingdom, when Christ will establish his kingdom here on earth. Now, as we see this, we see that Christ is being seated. And before we move forward, like I say, you always have to anticipate questions, and I see the questions that you're having, and the question is, what is being involved in seating Christ in the heavenlies? What is going on here? Uh, and there's two main interpretations for this. The first is that Christ is being enthroned in heaven, the enthronement of Christ, Now, this enthronement looks a a little bit different in every situation, depending on how people interpret it. Some see this enthronement as as in the parable of the mustard seed, how the mustard seed gets planted and it's very small and it starts to sprout and sprout and grow and grow and and get very big, and and then all the animals and everything come and and are under it and and there's blessing. And so people see that um, this enthronement messianic kingdom that, that's happening right now that as Christ has been enthroned in heaven that it has already started and we're living in Christ's kingdom right now. It, it's kind of flourishing. If you read the newspaper the flourishing isn't happening too much right now, right? It's, it's kind of like maybe we're in a drought or something. You know, it's, It'd be hard to really develop this and some people have abandoned this but some people still hold strong. They've got it tattooed on their chest and so They have to keep on talking about it. Others say, no, no, it's not a physical kingdom where he's he's establishing. This is a a spiritual kingdom. You you accept Christ into your heart, and he sits on the throne of your heart, and, and he rules your heart. And some say, this is an enthronement of a spiritual kingdom, and it's actualized in the hearts of individuals. That has a lot of problems. When you start seeing how God, how Christ will rule when he sets up his kingdom with a rod of iron and you see how good Christian men act and how good Christian women act, you have to say, is really Christ reigning in that person's heart with a rod of iron? It, it doesn't congeal. I mean, you can have a sloppy theology and keep on living, but it doesn't really congeal. It, it doesn't make real, a lot of sense. And then some say, well, it's, uh, it's a little bit different. What, what it is, is Christ is enthroned, and he's right now enthroned spiritually, and then later on, he'll be enthroned physically. So that, now that's a marriage of both of them. And um, it, the, his kingdom is spiritually right now in our hearts, and then physically later on. Again, it, it, it could be, you could develop it like that, But when you look at how Christ presents his kingdom and how he's going to be ruling, you have to really ask, is Christ ruling that way in our hearts? I mean, you have to make a lot of accommodations to make this thing work, you know? It's like um, jigsaw puzzles that don't really fit and you just kind of, at the end, just kind of tape them all there and I'm done, you know? Uh, You could hold it like that. The second way of understanding this, I think, is better. That what... Christ being seated, God is the one ruling, and Christ is waiting for the Father to give him his physical kingdom. It's still something future. It's still something that will happen. It hasn't happened yet. Uh, Psalm 110 anticipates a future time when all enemies will be put down. It anticipates, so what's happening right now? Well, well, Christ is acting as, a, as an intercessor, as an advocate, as a, as a priest for believers, as the great shepherd. That's what he's doing right now. He's head of the church. He intercedes for believers. That's what's going on right now. And and that's how I would see that's understanding. Now, if we look at this, uh, we say, what difference does this make? Whether he's reigning spiritually or if he's reigning physically and we're going to develop, what what difference does it make? You just wasted ten minutes of my time here. I, I... I could have just stayed home. Well, uh, I would say that probably for the majority, it it makes no difference. Individuals who can barely articulate their faith and and who they're trusting, this thing about the kingdom makes no sense at all. People that stumble trying to just share their testimony and and whom they have their faith. (laughs) This, This has nothing to do with life. But if, if, you want to have an organized theology. If you want one that's consistent, then, then you have to look at this, especially as you think about, about what you're supposed to be doing right now. Well, what is the church supposed to be involved in? Are, are we establishing a kingdom, God's kingdom here on earth? Well, how does that look like? Well, we'd have to read Joshua, Judges, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles to see how God established the kingdom here on earth. He's like, well, I don't want to do that. I want to take Old Testament theocracy and combine it with New Testament law and ignore the whole book of Revelation. Well, that's just a sloppy theology. I mean, (laughs) what type of theology would that be? It's inconsistent. If we understand this, we understand that we're the body of Christ. We're to be obedient to the head. It, it changes how we budget, where we spend money, what we try to develop, how, how we try to disciple people. It, it involves our ministries that we're doing, if we understand this correctly. Now, if we just disregard it and just don't care and just say, well, whatever, then we, our ministries will be crazy. God is working through the church right now. And the church has an obligation of teaching those around us to observe all that he has commanded, to come under the headship of of Christ. That's what we're supposed to be doing. That's how we're supposed to be spending our money. That's how our ministries are supposed to be looking like. Everything geared towards leading people to be under the headship of Christ into the church. Now, if you see this, you'll notice that Christ will forever have authority. He's now seated, and he will forever be seated. There's not another hum- uh, uh, humiliation that will happen. There's another time, not going to be another time where he comes down again a second time to die on the cross a second time. No, that's done. He's forever exalted. Not only is he forever exalted, but Christ has ex- authority now. Any authority that I have as a husband as a father, is only valid in my decisions as they reflect what God wants. As elders, the only authority we have is in reflecting what God has revealed. (laughs) Outside of that, we have no authority. In your homes, the only authority you have is as good as you can reflect what God has said, his character, his person who's the true authority? Christ is. God has put him there. And and our desire should be to look more like Christ and less like ourselves. Christ has authority now. We're to risk it all for God because you are in Christ. If you're in Christ, you have hope. However, if If your hope is not Christ, then you won't want to risk. You won't. You won't want to live a life for him because it will put in jeopardy your desires. You won't want to be obedient to him because you might risk what you want, your dreams. But if your hope is in Christ, there is no risk. It's a non-risk. And you can invest your life in obedience to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray now that we will put our hope in Christ. Father, we know that that glorifies you. Father, there might be someone here that's never accepted Christ as their Savior, and I pray that today will be the day of salvation, that today that they'll come forward and that they'll put their faith in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for other of us who we haven't been living under the headship of Christ. We've been determining our own purposes and our own dreams. I pray that we will repent of those and that we'll put our hope in Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.